this is Dorota Sasha Bole, and you're listening to Beyond, a candid conversation with people who inspire me and intrigue me. She's one of the most famous writers in Switzerland. She has published 19 books, 20. novels, 20, I'm 20 sorry, by now. <laughs> short stories and memoirs. Some of her novels were adapted for the screen. She's a daughter of Marley Portner, the psychologist, and Paul Portner, a well-known German playwright and novelist. Her younger brother is also a writer. Her name is Milena Moser. I met Milena a few months ago. A few ladies were talking, drinking <laughs> wine. I joined them. I looked at their shoes. <laughs> And there were those colorful, cool cowboy boots. Milena's boots. <laughs> Welcome, Milena. In your memoir, False Journey, or How I Chased After Happiness, just to find it waiting for me, you wrote. The idea of letting go of my possessions hardly scares me at all. Compared to everything else I have lost, it even inspires me. What brought you to the point of being able, being able to let go? I think it had to do with having lost so many other things, mainly my marriage, my family, in the sense that my kids were grown up. Um, I had been married twice, so it was really hard for me to, um, to accept the failure of my second marriage. I felt like all my identities, like uh, being a mother, being a wife, fell away from me and uh, I also moved house already two or three times during that period and I just came to the point where I felt like things are the least important things. <laughs> yes. It's, um, you know, those are, even my books, you know, I had books from, I worked in a bookstore when I was 16 years old. I still had books that I bought there with my first earned money and I somehow always felt they defined me but I gave away like, I think, 84 boxes of books. And I'm still the same person, kind of. Do you have the things you keep with you, you will never get rid of? You know, it's funny, when it came to um, choose the things I would take with me, I couldn't take much. And so it was a very quick process. And I didn't think much. Obviously, the photos of my children are very important to me. But then there's other things like those weird these weird things I made when I was a kid they're supposed to hold hard-boiled eggs how do you call those things I egg holders egg holders yeah yeah those ugly yeah. things in the back egg holders yes. So yes I I made them when I was nine years old they're really ugly but for some reason I took them everywhere with me I don't know what about the boots of course I had a whole I had eight boxes that I took with me six were still books one was boots and the other was uh, all the rest <laughs> I have one more paragraph I would like you to read. For my 50th birthday, I would take three months off and drive across the U.S. in a rental car, completely alone, completely without a set route or goal. Because my inner voice, in the course of my long and unhappily ended marriage, had gotten small and silent. I have three why questions. <laughs> why the road trip? Why alone? And why in the USA? Okay, 
The last one is the easiest to answer. Um, we used to live in San Francisco for eight years uh, with my ex-husband and the kids, and I still had a lot of friends here, and I still always felt like I want to move back one day. But all my friends kind of moved away from San Francisco because it became too expensive. So I kind of had friends all over the U.S. So that was an easy goal. Why alone is because um, what I said in that excerpt, when you're married and when you have children, you kind of train yourself not to worry about what you want because it just gets too complicated. So you're always very aware of the needs of all the other members of your family, all um Lino has to do this, Syl has uh, sports after school, oh, my husband has to go on a trip, you have to pack his... You know, you're always aware of everyone else's needs, but you don't know mm-hmm. what you want. So if you travel even with your kindest friend, it would be like, okay, do you want to stop here? Well, I don't know. Do you want to stop here? Well, I don't know. What do you want? So you kind of don't hear your voice and you have to... It's almost like a muscle that has been, that hasn't been used in years or decades... You have to train it with patience and slowly, but you have to train yourself to hear that voice again. And you have to be alone for that. Oh, there was a and third why, wife. Why, why the road trip? <laughs> the road trip was just a romantic idea. It turned out when I started the road trip that I don't even like driving that for long stretches. And I don't like driving alone. So that was a little bit of a... Um, yeah, that idea bombed a little bit. But the rest of the trip went well anyway. <laughs> I started taking the train more often. You planned to spend time with happy couples. Was this some yes. kind of a therapy? Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit more about it? Yes, I was. Um, I know in my heart I'm an incurable romantic. I always had these um, ideas of, you know... A, I think I once discussed this with my, with the girlfriend of one of my sons when she was about 16. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it turned out we had the exact same ideas about love and romance and, you know, these ideals. And I thought, that's is weird. You're 50. What are those ideas? Um, there's one person who makes you happy. There's, there's love at first sight. There's a person somewhere out there that makes you feel like It's okay to be yourself and you're loved the way you are and you can just be completely yourself and be completely loved at the same time. And I never really had that, but I was kind of chasing it. I was, I couldn't give up after my second marriage failed because I felt like I never really had that. I always felt like, oh, what do I have to do to make this person happy? It never felt, I never felt like I was enough, but I had this ideal and I thought, I know it exists and I know people who have it. So I went to visit them in the hopes that A, I would learn something from them and B, of course, I secretly hoped that their happiness would rub off on me. (laughs) And of course, I felt like I wanted to fall in love on that trip too. But that didn't really happen. That happened later. (laughs) Can you tell us about... uh a few f- highlights from your trip and what did you learn by spending time with those couples? Well, there was one couple, the first couple I visited lives in Maine and they've been together forever and they basically, I think they moved in with each other on their first date and she got pregnant after three weeks and they've just been together ever since, 25 or 26 years. And they had very, 
they didn't have an easy life. They had ups and downs financially, professionally, um, health-wise. But they never turned against each other. I always felt like they were together facing life. They were never turning against each other. And I've never seen such a, such a deep connection between two people. They're one of my favorite couples ever. And so um, they were the first ones I visited. And they were kind of like my touchstone just to see, yes, this does exist. And it has nothing to do with ideal circumstances. And the second couple lives in uh, southern Louisiana. And they, um, they play music almost every day. And they go dancing almost every day. And I'm a horrible dancer. I'm really, I have no sense of rhythm. I'm very clumsy. I'm tall and clumsy. I have big feet. And so they took me dancing. And Suzanne, the woman, said, you know, people who dance together, they stay together. You can't be mad at someone you dance with. And so, of course, even then I had the secret hope, like maybe one of those charming southern gentlemen I could fall in love with didn't happen. And my, <laughs> my dancing actually made people make fun of me a little bit. But still, it was a very good experience. You were chasing happiness. What was your definition of happiness before your road trip? You know, that's a very good question because I kind of had to redefine happiness because from the outside, I've had it all before. You know, I was mm -hmm. married. I had two children. I was a successful writer. I made enough money. I went to interesting places for work. And from the outside, I had it all. But inside, I was so miserable, and I always felt, I always had this nagging feeling like I'm not good enough. I have to work extra hard for people to like me. For It was almost like I have to earn my right to be here. That, of course, you know, the, the reasons for that can be um, looked for in therapy, which I did. And, you know, I understand the reasons for that feeling, but I wanted it to go away. So after my marriage broke up and... I felt like I even felt burned out from writing, which is all I ever wanted to do since I was eight years old. I really had to redefine what happiness means to me. And in retrospect, when I wrote this book, I realized how, how restless I was. I really feel bad for my former self because I see myself chasing, chasing, chasing after something where all I really wanted was just this feeling of, yes, It's okay. It's enough. You're here. That's enough. Just relax. You're good enough. So that was the feeling I was chasing. And it took me a while to realize you can't chase it. You know, you kind of have to, you have to sit still and let go and relax in order to experience it. And that's the definition of happiness today, correct? For me, yes. For me, it is. Part two of your book comes with with a very surprising uh, title. Happiness has four walls. And we are <laughs> sitting here yes. <laughs> in your happiness. Yes. In four walls. Could you tell us a story how you fell in love yes. with this place, which is very charming. Thank and you. the little uh, courtyard outside, yeah. it's so charming. And this place is of... Canyon Road, mm -hmm. uh, located in Santa Fe. Tell us more, more about <laughs> this place. I would love to. Well, one of the couples I visited lives in Santa Fe, or used to live in Santa Fe at that time. 
And so um, my friend Kachi took me um, to see the sites, one of which is Canyon Road, and we went in and out of galleries. And I have to admit, I didn't like most of the art I saw. And I also have to admit that I didn't fall in love with Santa Fe right away. I thought it was a weird place. I couldn't really <laughs> get it. Like, what is all this adobe and so on? So it wasn't love at first sight. But then we saw a sign, open house. And I said, just on a whim, let's check out that little house. So we went in the in the backyard and opened the door. And then we were in that courtyard. And it was full of people checking out the house. A little casita, very small. Um, I don't know in square feet, but it's about 50 square meters. So you do the math. 500. <laughs> Square feet around. Probably, yeah. yeah. And so I walked in and there was this window seat that you can see here. And I just walked over there and sat down. I felt this deep sense of relief, like, oh, thank God I'm home. Because mm. I had been traveling for a while at that point and I was a little exhausted. And I just felt like, oh, thank God I'm home. And then I jumped up almost immediately and thought, like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> what are you thinking? But then the realtor kind of smelled something. And uh -huh. came over and he introduced himself and it turned out that he had a Swiss name. So his grandfather was from Switzerland. So there was already a connection. And then he handed me a little leaflet that said, this is the ideal home for a writer. And I said, I know. <laughs> and so immediately I felt like, okay, I have to buy this house. But I didn't have any money. <laughs> and so for a few days I tried to get a loan here and there in Switzerland. And I couldn't get a loan. And so I... Kind of after two or three weeks, I I told them, I'm backing out. I can't get the money together. And then um, the, the former owner kind of stayed in touch with me. And he was kind of flirting with me a little bit, although he was gay. And so at some point, <laughs> I, I Googled him. And then I must have misspelled his name. And so the, another guy with a similar name came up. A musician, and it said in concert with Stefan Porto, which is almost the name of my brother. And I, I have to admit, I had like a couple of glasses of wine at that point, but I saw that and I thought, it's a sign because my brother has money and we don't get along too well. But at that point, I felt like, okay, this is a sign. So I just called him and said, Do you want to give me 300,000 Swiss francs? I mean, lend, not give. Mm -hmm. And he said, Well, let me think about it. And I heard his wife yell from the background, yeah, let's do it, let's do it. And so he nice. gave me the money and I came back to Santa Fe and I walked back into that little house and told the owner, listen, I'm buying this house. And that was it. Has he visited you here in Santa Fe, your brother? Uh, my brother, no. Not no, yet? No, he has a small child. Okay. And he, I think they'll be ready when she's about 12 or 13. They're very cautious parents. So, But I do hope, I especially think my niece will love it here. Your happiness was challenged. Yes. In what ways? Well, the funny thing is, there were about maybe five minutes where I felt like I have my life under control. Now I know what I'm going to do. I bought this house. Um, I will use it as a vacation home until my younger son is completely out of school and then I will move here and live a very quiet life and focus on my writing. As soon as I had bought the house and went back to Switzerland, my friend Doris, who um, had said she would check on the house a couple of times a month, called me and said, you have to sit down. 
And so it turned out that the whole house was swimming on a lake because all the pipes had been rotten and had been rotten for a while. It turned out later that it had been a known problem, but somehow it didn't come up during inspection. And so basically they had to tear open the whole house and fix, replace all the pipes mm. and then have it dry out because, you know, Santa Fe is the high desert. It's not a swamp. But it was really, you know, the neighbors laughed about it and said, oh, Lake Milena. <laughs> it was literally a lake. It was swimming on a lake. And so for a moment, I felt like, oh, my God, this, this is a test. Maybe I did the wrong thing. And, you know, Swiss people are very cautious and not very optimistic. So all my Swiss friends said, like, oh, my God, you made the biggest mistake of your life. <laughs> and only one friend said, you know, it's very simple. Either you have the money to fix it or you don't. And so it turned out to be not as expensive as I thought. So I just fixed it and I've been happy ever since. I love the title of your book. What kind of message did you want to convey behind the title Fool's Journey? <laughs> Such a cool. Thank you. <laughs> um, some people thought it was too negative a title, but I love it because of the, you know, the tarot card, the fool is kind of stepping in the, in the void. You know, it's just stepping off a cliff and you don't know where he's going. And that is very much how I felt, not only during this trip that I described, but a lot of times in my life, I just take a huge step and I really have no idea if I'm going to land somewhere or where. And what, you know, I can't plan. I never really plan for things. And in my experience, you can't, because even if you do make a solid plan, life very often decides otherwise. And so it's this kind of distrust in, okay, I'm just going to... I'm just going to move. I'm just going to step out of my comfort zone. I'm just going to take that leap and it's going to be okay. Maybe not immediately, but at some point. I mean, if I had stopped the story after the Lake Milena, it would have been a horrible story. <laughs> but now it's a happy story. It's time for a short break. We'll okay. be right yeah. back. inspired by people who have a gift for writing, who can create the images and feelings with words. Was it always easy for you to write? Yes, I have to say yes, it was always easy in the sense that I always loved it. For me, reading and writing are almost the same thing. And when I was a child, I had a lot of accidents. I was accident prone. I spent a lot of time in the children's hospital. And books were just my, my escape out of that hospital room. And when I was about, I think, eight years old, I had a um, skull fracture, so they didn't let me read. And that was really horrible. I mean, I'm really addicted to reading and writing. And that's when I started making up stories in my mind at first and later writing them down. And it was that huge aha moment. It's like when you first learn to read and you're not depending on anyone to read you a bedtime story anymore. It's this huge rush of power. Like now you can read all night under the covers with your flashlight if your parents don't catch you. And then I discovered 
if I don't have a book, I can just write one. So when I was eight or nine years old, I started just kind of rewriting my favorite children's books or some that I didn't like the ending, I would rewrite them. And it all came from there and it was very much something I did for myself in the beginning. So yes, it was easy. Do you think that someone can become a good writer? I think anyone can be a really good writer if they really, really want it. Because like with anything, what makes you better and better and better is just doing it, doing it, doing it. And so you have to be drawn to writing and almost get addicted to the act of writing. People who want to write because they want to have a book published and they want to be a writer more than they want to write, they will fail. But anyone who learned how to write in second grade and anyone who ever played make-believe as a child can be a writer and can be a great writer if they commit to it, if they do it, and if they love doing it. Yes, absolutely. Your dad was a writer. Yeah. Was he a big influence on you? He was almost in a negative way because he... Um, He was not as successful as he wanted to be and he was very, he suffered greatly from that. And so when I was a child, often there were these other writers visiting us and they would always discuss not so much their writing, but the reception of their books and did someone else get a better review than them and was this person going to be immortal by this or that book? And I remember as a child just sitting there and thinking, what are they talking about? Something's wrong here. And I could see how miserable my father was, um, not when he was writing, but when he published a book and it didn't get good reviews or it didn't sell so well. So I kind of became almost immune against that, which was very lucky because um, it took me six years to find a publisher. So I got rejection letters for six years for three novels. And when my first book was published, I got really bad reviews. So thank God I had this experience growing up that kind of taught me it's not about what people think about your writing. It's about are you someone who writes or not? Is that what you do or not? And not are you doing it to be, to get this or that reaction. I do it because there's nothing else I'd rather do. Is this true that you have to write a book first for yourself? I definitely think that you have to write the book that you want to read. But I also think that there's, there is no way you can control the reaction of your readers. So there's no guarantee if I write like this, it will, or if this is my message, um, people will understand my message the way I meant it there's really no guarantee for that because I know that as a reader that it depends very much on my state of mind and where I am in my life how I read a book it's when you reread a book that you loved when you were 21 and you're 41 it's a very different experience the book is the same so you have no control over the reader but I really do think you have to find some fulfillment in the act of writing And then whatever happens after it's published, even if it's not published, is not so important anymore. How do you come up with your stories and characters <laughs> for a book? Do you watch people? Do you make notes? 
I do take a lot of notes and I do watch people excessively, but when I work on a novel, usually it starts with a, like a voice in my head. And I actually had a funny experience once when I had a, um, uh, my doctor, it like I had these um, extensive tests and one of them was a psychological test or maybe a psychiatric test, I don't remember. So it was a, like a multiple choice answer. And one question was, do you sometimes hear voices that nobody else can hear? <laughs> yes, often, sometimes. And so I checked very often and they immediately called me. Apparently that's a red flag. <laughs> and they said, who are you hearing, Miss Moser? And I said, well, the, the, my characters. Oh, oh, well, then it's, it's okay. But it often starts like, it's almost like I have a thought that is not mine or I hear a voice and I don't know whose voice it is. It's almost like I'm hearing someone's thoughts and then maybe I see someone opening a door and I think, huh, I wonder what she's doing. And I kind of have to write it down to see the, the next step. So basically, it's like with my pen, I follow a movie in my head that I have no idea how it's going to develop. And that is the big rush I get from writing because I don't know where it's going. I don't know where it will lead me. I don't know what the, the characters are going to do. I have no control over them. Who is your favorite character you have <laughs> created? Huh. That is very hard. Um, in my very first published book was a series of short stories. There was an anonymous um, first-person narrator who just committed murders left and right. Basically, whenever somebody bothered her, she would just kill the person without any remorse. It was a very immoral book. I was very young when I wrote it, but I still kind of have a, a soft spot for that character. Now I write very different stories, and in my last book there were two boys who grew up under similar, not-so-pleasant circumstances, and I love them very much too. And I think my next characters will be my favorites again. You grew up in Switzerland. How yes. do you remember your childhood? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, Switzerland is a very, very beautiful place place, a very safe place, but in many ways very restrictive. You knew there was a bug coming, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so I always felt it hard to, because I, I never really fit in. So um, my childhood was not very pleasant, and but I think that's true for a lot of writers. There was the combination of being sick a lot, having accidents, having a tumultuous family life, and being the complete outsider in school. I mean, the other kids just hated me. And that changed, of course, once I was a grown-up and became famous. <laughs> um, but when I was in school, I got beaten up a lot. I got bullied a lot. And I was really quite miserable. And I'm not sure if it would have been different in another country, but I always felt like in Switzerland, the most important thing is to fit in. And I just didn't. What are your plans for the future? <laughs> I don't make plans anymore. <laughs> I know that, I, you know, I'm going to go to San Francisco in 10 days and then I'll come back on November 6th and that's about it. So I plan about two or three weeks ahead, not much more. Why do you go to San Francisco? Oh, because after I finished writing this book, I did fall in love with an old friend who uh, lives in San Francisco. 
So now my life is very complicated again. Not complicated, it's very beautiful, but I just go back and forth between Santa Fe and San Francisco. Is it easier to fall in love when you are happy? Yes, unfortunately, that was, uh, it always, always upset me when I was kind of looking for happiness and looking to fall in love. And people would tell me, you have to love yourself first. And I was like, well, that would be easier if I had someone who loved me. <laughs> But they were all right. It's, you know, there's no way around it. You have to be happy with yourself. And that's exactly what happened to me. And then I kind of saw it. Oh, this person has been here all this time. And I just kind of, it was like I opened my eyes and whoa. I have a few fun questions for you. <laughs> Pictures or words? Words. Milena in three words. Um, unplanned, uncontrolled. I don't know if these are real English words. And happy. The most significant lesson you have learned? I would say that's the lesson in that I describe in my book when I got really, really sick and I was in so much pain and I felt like I'm never going to be happy again. And then I just let go and said, okay, I'm always going to be in pain. I'm always going to be tired and that's okay. And immediately this darkness lifted. Your favorite pair of, sh of boots? Oh, it's the ones you described, the ones with the colorful stitches. One thing most people do not know about you. That I can knit. <laughs> <laughs> Is this your work? No. No. Okay. <laughs> I want to finish this interview by letting you read the last paragraph of your book. The paragraph which is so beautifully written and sums up your journey. I find one more pizza in the freezer, shove it in the oven, no plates, just paper napkins. And here we sit, eat, laugh and talk all at once, until the jet lag catches up with them. Cyril crumples up the paper napkins and grins at me sleepily. Mama, he says, this has been the most relaxing Christmas since forever. No plates, just paper napkins. Mama, he says, this has been the most relaxing Christmas since forever. <laughs> For more inspiring episodes, please visit www.sashabole.com, where you will also find a link to Milena's website. Thank you, Milena. Thank you. And thank you for listening.